Wade into Wealth, taking one of life's most intimidating topics, money, your financial well-being, and providing simple, easy-to-understand ways to be more comfortable with your own financial health. This is Wade into Wealth, brought to you by the Wade Group at Brighton Securities. Hello again. Thanks for being with us. I'm Chuck Wade. My brother Ethan Wade is here too, and we are the Wade Brothers of the Wade Group at Brighton Securities. We hope you enjoyed Real Estate Month. Hope you learned something. And uh, again, a big thank you to our guests, Corey James Moran, Dan Mancuso, and John Milano from Genesee Regional Bank. A lot of good value there um, during the month of, month of July. But we're changing topics now. We're into the swing of things with the Tokyo Summer Olympics. And we're going to talk about something today that is... A little different, kind of a change of pace, but I think it's something that's interesting um, is the idea of the financial side of the Olympics, both the games and as an athlete. And I think there's a lot of things we don't know about. Right. And it's still weird having the Olympics in an odd year. Uh, Typically, they're always only in the even years, but thanks to the pandemic stricken 2020, Tokyo Olympics are now in 2021. And... I think uh, with our guest, we're going to get some good perspective on things that we don't often think about mm-hmm. and the benefits that uh, having the Olympics bring to a country. Uh, I think we often see the rundown and decrepit mm-hmm. facilities after a while and don't realize uh, you know, what, what type of a toll that has and, and if it ultimately does have a benefit, uh, benefit on these other countries. But also just from the perspective of having a... An Olympian, and uh, I'm not an Olympic athlete, uh, as far as I know. Neither are you. Nope. Uh, and so I think this is. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be exciting uh, conversation, and I think we're ready to get started. Something I've learned as we've gone through this podcast, and even before then, really, is that there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And when you don't, yeah, I mean, I knew that going into yeah, it for, in you regards did. to <laughs> you, you did. but yeah, when you don't, it's best to go to someone. Who does? Right. And we have found that, or I have found, that having guests on our podcast has really added a lot of value sure. to it. And I think Chris Hout, who is our guest today, is going to do the same thing. Chris is a two-time Olympic swimmer. He competed for Germany in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, which is the first Olympic game I really remember. And again in 1996 in the Atlanta Games. Uh, after his Olympic career, Chris then transitioned to the sport of triathlon. He found a, a good deal of success there and now coaches ultra-endurance athletes, which an ultra-endurance athlete, someone that competes in really any sport. It can be running, biking, swimming, just significantly longer distances. But Chris has a real breadth of knowledge in this area, and he shares with us some of his own Olympic ex- experiences along with what you may not know about the financial side of being an Olympic athlete. Chris, one of the things that I think I find most interesting about your stories when you think here in the United States, well, someone competed in the Olympics. We typically assume they competed for the United States, which was not the case um, for you. And and I think when it comes to your Olympic story, you can certainly tell it better than than we could with a paragraph Mm -hmm. gleamed off the internet. So how did you come to compete and for whom in the uh, 92 and 96 Olympics, did you compete? Yeah, well, those are the two Olympics. That's correct. But I swam for the German team, and it was the first unified German team. So there's a lot of story behind that, and that is just mainly that, you know, before you had the West German and East German team, and each one of them, of course, came with their own story um, and their own history. But with that, you also had that it was the first unified team in 92. So there was a lot of dynamics around that, which usually wouldn't have created an environment that I could have qualified for the team. So due to the financial hardship and the change in lifestyle that a lot of the East German swimmers, male swimmers, were struggling through, um, their ability to keep or maintain a high level of fitness and a high level of training was not quite, that infrastructure was gone. Nobody was taking care of pools. You know, the the system, as the communist East German system was, was no longer in place. And therefore, everything that they were doing and what they knew went away. And from that, 
as anywhere from stipends and government support on the apartments and paying gas in a car, paying their cars, keeping the pools clean and maintained, all of that was gone for like 18 months. And so it became very complicated and difficult for those athletes um, competing for East Germany. And then when we decided, we being Germany, the unified Germany, to present one team, it was a complicated situation that I benefited from because from there, um, people who would be faster than me have proven to be faster than me were a lot more successful than me um, didn't have, you know, the training ability. And so in hindsight, that's sort of what I learned because you go into it with names and people and their past times and you're like, well, you know, I'll give it my best. I didn't have any expectations. And from there, magic happened at Olympic trials. So you were West in West Germany, is that correct? Yes. And then, so I'm curious too, as an aside, like what that was like, because for, I think since what, 1949, East and West Germany had been, they were not, they were not one, they were not unified. And now all of a sudden they are. I'm, I'm curious just what the, what that was like then all of a sudden coming together with a team of athletes that you weren't necessarily affiliated with not that long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's tumultuous, right? On the one hand, you understood their situation. It was an exciting time in Germany. Um, People who grew up separate, separate families, divided towns, and a divided nation, quite honestly, and a psyche. When that all came down, it was was euphoria. But then quickly, we also understood, well, this is going to be a lot of work, (laughs) catching up a generation that has been, you know, under a communist system, a communist mindset, as well as sort of their expectations of, well, if we're now part of Germany, we want all the luxuries and the, uh, the income and the lifestyle that West Germans had. And so it was a tumultuous time too, also with regards to people feeling not only sorrow, which no East German wanted, they're way too prideful, And so there was this, it was a bizarre dynamic because then on the other hand, the East Germans were like, we expect now as Germans, we never wanted to be divided, to be up to par with what the lifestyle and the income and sort of the the benefits of being a West German. So a lot of changes, a lot of cultural changes, a lot of mindset changes. Then down on the athlete level, of course, there was some you know, not jealousy, but you knew, okay, if we're combining team, I'm quickly going from third place in the country to eighth place. So of course there's a little bit of tension there. Um, but again, you, you just sort of accept that for what it is. It, it wasn't necessarily that I was the favorite prior. And then because of that, now I'm kicked off the back end. Right. And that quite honestly is part of the Olympic experience. You, no going in you just saw it at u.s olympic trials a few weeks ago some big favorites and big names did not make the team um in swimming because you know a new generation comes up look at it just perfectly an example this last year coronavirus has changed and the pandemic had changed the entire extension of your fitness and your training and maybe hanging on to the back end of your career from swimming perspective as well as it allows the 14, 15, 16-year-old teenagers to develop better, stronger, faster, smarter another year. So it changes the dynamics of any type of Olympic qualifying because the pool has changed. Literally not the pool, swimming pool, but the pool of athletes, no pun intended there. So even when they announced that the Olympics were postponed last year, it's right away as an Olympian, you know what that means. The sacrifices, the families, the financial strain, the mindset, the, the fatigue of staying that engaged, as well as a younger generation going, oh my gosh, I might have an opportunity. I can get better, faster, stronger. I can be in that pool next um, you know, June, like they were this June in 2021. And that turns it into a totally different, I can do two Olympics in three years, because remember, 2024 is still happening on time. Yep. That, that changes an entire generation of swimmers, of athletes, because 
wait a minute, I can technically in seven years get in three Olympics. That's, yeah. that's a lot. That's a pretty big legacy. So similar for us to bring it back to that, it was you just deal with what you have. I mean, you're not thinking, okay, what happens if that person gets sick or that person is stronger than me? Or that? You just go in there and do your best. And the beauty of the Olympic trials back then, again, there's a big asterisk there, um, is you get top two, you, you're basically in. That was the last Olympics in 92 where that happened. As of then, they changed the rules. And we saw that even at U.S. Olympic trial swimming this year. You have some of the fastest swimmers in the world, but if you get second place, you're not guaranteed a spot. Up until 92, no matter what, on the U.S. Olympic team, you are guaranteed a spot. 96 as well, because it's the home Olympics. But things started changing that they put in these qualifying times, because you might remember, many people who watch the Olympics might remember, in swimming especially, you'd have hundreds of heats <laughs> for you know, a swimmer from you know, Zimbabwe swimming a hundred freestyle, right? It's going to, they're not going to be as fast as the Americans who, or the Europeans. And so, but since every country sent a representative, you have all these hours long heats. So then they implemented qualifying times. Same as in track and field, right? You have to hit a standard. And so back then you get top two in the U.S., you're in, no matter what. Now things change with the qualifying standards. So back to that time, it was, you know, yeah, you get top two at that race. So first get into the final and then figure out from there, then roll the dice. And that's, that's the mindset you had. Whoever shows up, it is what it is. You can't influence that. You can't change that. You don't control outside circumstances. And that's how we were also primed from a sports psychology standpoint very early on on the national team. And that is, which we had a lot of on the West German team, especially, is, you know, you only control your circumstances, whatever. You don't control the things you don't control. Focus on the things you can control. Doing your best. Learning not to compete, but to perform, which is a big difference. If you're focused on competition, you're focused on the other people around you. If you're focused on performance, you are focused. The whole shift goes to, I'm looking to do my best, unleash my potential. And if I hit that wall when I'm done with my event and I've unleashed the best current potential of who I am and what I trained and what I can do, I'm going to be happy either way. Versus competition, it's black and white. Did you win or lose? Did I beat that person or not? So the failure aspect comes up so much quicker because I did not win, I did not beat the competition. Whereas I did my best performance is a completely different approach. So I think you're in a unique position, Chris, to be able to provide us some perspective because we see as consumers of the Olympics, every couple of years, they're front and center for two weeks, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's in the winter, to, to just the general viewing public ignoring the the qualifying events and everything else. Uh, And a lot of these Olympians become household names for two weeks every other year. But that doesn't mean that they only compete for two weeks every other year, and they're only training for two weeks every other year. I would imagine that's a full-time job and and in a lot of ways a full-time commitment to be that good. But what does that entail? You know, something you alluded to was kind of the financial burden and some of the hardships that come with that, where how are some of these Olympians making money or getting by to be able to spend this time training leading up to those two weeks into the every other year uh, or, or every, excuse me, every four years for their respective uh, situations yeah. that they're involved? Well, the challenge um, becomes where you are in your Olympic cycle. Um, once you start working in this world, you're working in four-year increments anyway, mm-hmm. but For many who are not yet in the Olympic cycle, they have a wonderful system in the United States called the NCAA. We don't have that in Europe. Um, Now, whether that's paid or not, that's a whole different thing we don't need to uh, unlock now. But it is an infrastructure and support system that allows you to train at some very, very high levels with some amazing facilities and support and, um, you know, 
care, as well as, you know, you're getting an education. Um, so student athletes in the NCAA system is one of the best feeder systems to outstanding athletic performance, especially on the amateur level. Now, if you're looking at baseball, football, hockey, basketball, that's a different aspect of amateur athletics in, in the NCAA, and not because of any type of payment, but it's more just the question of you're going on, you're moving on. It's a stepping stone. It's sort of like the, the minor leagues towards some of the pro leagues, as well as, I mean, technically the pro league, if you're playing SEC football in front of 100,000 people, yeah. right? Um, but from an amateur standpoint, from swimmers to soccer players to track and field to the hundreds of little sports that are out there, um, it is a phenomenal infrastructure that allows you to financially support yourself because you're younger, you're earlier in the Olympic cycle. And so therefore you might not have a family. You're not looking to, you're not looking for housing or food and all those things. Um, so that's the front end of it. Now the problem is, and not necessarily a problem, that's a bad wording, but you get into the first Olympics, you have hope that you can go move on to another Olympics. And now you're four years past or oftentimes that's the next four years post-college. You could technically like throw in some MBA stuff or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, postgraduate degree. Um, but again, that isn't free anymore since you've lost your NCAA and eligibility. So it becomes a different financial burden, but you know, you could be a grad um, assistant coach, sort of like I was. Um, so now we're in that phase and that becomes difficult. Yes, um, I was in that phase where you're trying to figure out how to make money you're trying to continue on with your training at a high, high level. Yet, from a psyche standpoint, everybody around you has moved on is in their entry level or starting their career jobs, accelerating up the corporate ladder, and you're staying still. You're not doing anything right. for your future. You are just doing the same thing you did in college. And it's hard. It's very hard. Um, you are just learning you, I mean, you're, the people around you are starting to make some money, significant money, um, because you're single or, you know, it's a simple lifestyle at sure, that time. Right. Right? We all remember back what that was like, you know, just mm -hmm. not even, you're just your own apartment, no mortgage, no overhead, no family, no, no car, kids. No, I used to think I had no time. Uh, now I realize <laughs> I had all the time in the world back then. Before, exactly. Uh, before we had no kids. Exactly. So. But it's significant amount of money for you out of college when you have no overhead. And so you see all that happening around you. It adds additional pressure. Now throw in if you actually do have a wife, um, which is not uncommon, yeah. or even children. And you're starting to think mortgage and car and how do I get to swim practice and body care and so forth. So it becomes a big expense. So post NCAA, and because you've made an Olympic team before, you're hoping that you get some sort of stipend for sure from USA Swimming, from the U.S. Olympic Committee and so forth. Oftentimes, there's also a great program in the United States with regards to larger corporations that support the U.S. Olympic Committee and give you a supporting job. Home Depot is one of them where they hire Olympians, current active Olympians, and they give them a job, but also provide them the infrastructure for um, pretty significant training time, yet also have a job. And so it, it's good for them um, because these are outstanding athletes and outstanding people and supportive and, and very good, positive, um, confident um, young men and women. But also it's good for the athletes because they have some sort of structure and support financially. I mean, it seems like such a disconnect. We're talking about world-class athletes who are the best at, at what they do. And we've seen in doing some research that you see some applying for food stamps or other oh, yeah. programs that can help them get by. And it just seems like such a discrepancy. And, and we're talking about some of the American athletes. Oh, uh, it's you mentioned how, it's, what are they doing in other countries to be able to, to get by through some of this? Well, yeah, that's the, so the United States is famous for its free market system. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, other countries where it's sort of more a socialist system, um, for example, Germany, you're fully supported by the government. Um, okay. The stipend is significant um, and the support you get is significant, as well as the corporate sponsors, 
we had um, anywhere from car dealerships um, that would pay for our car, as long as you, you know, have the Olympic symbol on the car that you're a supported athlete, that would be quite common. We have Olympic training centers. We have six of them in Germany that you train at and you can reside at and you can live close to and therefore your stipend plus the training center makes it quite easy. The United States only has one, you know, one in Colorado Springs and even there to be part of that while they are pretty powerful with regards to helping people and setting up that infrastructure, one is hard, right? Because you're, you're going to have to move your family or yeah. move yourself to Colorado Springs and so forth. Um, do you think so that's because of the presence of the NCAA? Why, it is why a big the... part of the NCAA. Um, it's just also, quite honestly, the corporate dollar, will, <laughs> there's not enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. Olympians in other countries get a totally different status than they do in the United States because you have NFL, MLB, right, NBA, right, right, yeah. NHL. You have a lot. You're fighting for that little space. And they're in here Germany, every year. Yeah, I mean, those four sports yeah. are is, is constant. It, Exactly. And you grow up with those athletes yep. there in front of you. That's the dollar. Whereas in Europe, you have Germany, you basically have soccer. Right. Like, and those right. academies, and they make their own money. That requires zero corporate dollars. Um, so it's a different structure for sure. So on the one hand, you don't have the young um, support with a college system. There you're already on it. But the other thing is you're already on it when you're 16, 17 there because you have to support yourself or work with the government in order to get that support. So it is quite supported over there. So for example, currently swimmers get about 3,000 to 4,000 euros a month, plus their car paid for, plus their apartment paid for, plus, you know, so it's pretty sustainable. That, that's pretty generous. That's pretty, yeah. yeah, that's pretty reasonable, yeah. and your two, best, two biggest expenses are covered, so. Um, yeah, and throw into it, they also... Um, give you as a an athlete that served the country on the big stage like that they give you somewhat of a pension as well so because you it's it's service for your country and so for like in the u.s it's a similar system but it doesn't last as long here you let's say you get i think fifty thousand dollars per gold medal from the u.s olympic committee there you also get about fifty thousand dollars per gold medal but also a you know thousand euros a month for life. Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's not nothing to live off of, but it's a nice. Well, that's a nice thank compliment you for, your for service. yeah, whatever else you have going on. Yeah. Right. Um. So then now I'm curious because I hadn't thought about the NCAA and then the division between countries. Um. So then, what about the other countries that just have such different economic statuses outside of the United States and Europe? I mean, primarily that's Africa. I would think, you know, a lot of those countries, I would think some of the Asian nations probably have something similar to that because they're probably a little more developed, although I could be wrong. Um, but I'm curious, like, what are the athletes in poor countries like, you know, poor continents or nations like Africa where how are they sustaining this or how are they funding training? Well, well, there is also corporate sponsors, okay. right? But also keep in mind that the poorer the country, the better the athlete, the more they represent the country, the government, the ruling party, the whole thing. So you're put on a pedestal anyway in order to represent for us. Now, of course, you have communist China, which is a completely different system, completely different support system, completely different force system. But again, there is because you're representing the ideology almost, you're also very supported but even the smaller countries in malaysia and so forth they're quite supported due to you're representing our little country mm-hmm. and the better you do the better we stand out and it's pure pride and it's pure glory and it's pure um you know pride in, in that sense when they're carrying that flag in at the opening ceremonies and you see only six people from that nation you, those all six of those people are pretty much set for life not because of financially, but because they're recognized and then they can work on off of that in the future. When you see 600 to 800 athletes walk in from the United States, right, right. half the faces you don't see because A, NBC will just go to the, the um, dream team or something like that yeah. or the big names, right? So, 
And even there, the corporate dollars run out very quickly. Um, the Wheaties box doesn't pay that much. You know, you're not going to have a Michael Phelps who's in a or a Katie Ledecky who are in a niche sport, smaller amateur sport that can sustain themselves over the years. And trust me, there's been plenty of effort I know in swimming in order to sustain that notoriety, that visibility in between the Olympic cycles. And they sort of, you know, have put together, you know, pro swimming leagues and so forth. But it's just not this the corporate dollars. As again, as you can imagine, where would we put our money? If you're going to sponsor somebody, right? Well, there's only so much bandwidth we all have. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. you, there will be a time you'll flip. I mean, it flipped on the trials. And I'm looking for people that I saw four years ago. Yeah. And some of them are not there anymore because they've aged out or they're different people. You're like, oh, well, where is so-and-so? And you have to relearn everything. There's a little more work. And, you know, I mean, as as you're a dual citizen, or I believe, correct? So, yeah. you know, as Americans, we tend to be lazy in a lot of cases, too, and not want to— But NBC, do- NBC does the work for us, right? So yeah. they'll choose their swimmers or their yeah. track and field athletes that they'll highlight and put a story on. Now, of course, in the background, everybody's getting a highlight and a story. It's just how you're doing. Then they bring that more and more to the surface, and then they pull more information, and then they record more information— I mean, the media machine is quite powerful, um, but they start at base level and they already know ahead of time, you know, these are the analysts have gone through this. They know exactly who stands the best chance and how they'll perform on the world stage. They also know them from other world championships or European championships or pan packs or different events so that the media presence of them is going to be good. Let's follow that. There's a story there. I mean, this whole thing is a feeding cycle. Um, but you'll see that, like, for example, you know, you'll see Caleb Dressel everywhere in the next, you know, six weeks for the Olympics because he's expected to medal in six or seven events, maybe even six or seven golds. So that's going to be a huge, huge media machine. And he, of course, he has to focus on his event, mm-hmm. but he also has to maximize the income stream in sure. the next, right. you know, 40 weeks. Because, you know, in November, nobody, the NFL is around. Like, nobody's right. going to pay attention to him on the, the Tonight Show. Or if he gets hurt or something happens or, or doesn't perform, you know, or someone else exactly. wins. You know, it's, it's exactly. like you have your 15 minutes. You better maximize that um, while you can. I think something in the United States, it seems, and if I'm wrong, let me know, um, as if each sport kind of governs itself and handles the training for, exi- for you know, for example, rowing has its own, you know, United States rowing has its own group mm-hmm. um, versus mm-hmm. swimming versus, you know, tennis or other sports. Are the sports a little more compartmentalized in terms of how they help athletes train, prepare, and be financially assisted? For sure. For sure. I mean, the U.S. Olympic Committee does have a fair amount of money with regards to supporting, but they'll support the federation. They don't support, they don't get involved in the individual athletes. The U.S. Olympic Committee will then say, all right, we're giving X amount of support and dollars and um, other support infrastructure-wise to bobsledding, to swimming. And then it's that individual federation that works on how they're going to apply those funds. Now, those funds are pretty limited as well, right? So, Again, the challenge becomes, and and sort of what we've been talking about, is navigating yourself through this difficult phase of your life that you've worked your entire life for, and that's all you know, um, and you just want to close the chapter to the best of your ability. That's the dream. And it isn't even necessarily, if you ask most Olympic athletes, amateur, um, that what it is they're looking to achieve, it's just to get the one opportunity to fully show their potential and hard work and to achieve the outcome they believe in their heart they can achieve just one and then then they're glad to move on it's just you hang on to that moment whether that's olympic moment whether that's whatever but the point is more i've worked my entire life for this and the the the, the cliff is always there the drop off into anonymity and into what was it all worth, right? Because whether it's injury or, you know, you're a, you're a great lineman at an SEC college 
Um, you played in front of 100,000 people. Guess what? Senior year, come you know, January, silence if you're not in an NFL process. That's it. Your body's broken. You've got, you know, there's no support there. You're done. And, and whether it's for swimmers, whether it's for hockey players, whether it's for field hockey, whether it's for lacrosse, all of a sudden, senior year ends, boom, the rug is pulled out from under you just because there is no next step. And it's everything you worked your entire life for. So this that's a dramatic transition financially as well. Like, wait, now I have to focus on the rest of my life. And some do it better than others. Some are willing to step into that adversity better than others. But for many, it's a very, very difficult transition to throw into it. This potential of Olympics that just keeps that string hanging on a little bit longer, man, it could be difficult. Yeah. You know, well, you, you know, and Chris, you coach a lot of athletes who, as you often say, have gone pro in something other than the sport. Um, mm -hmm. So for us, you know, and, and me being one of them, I mean, training is a part of what you do, but there, there's work, there's family, there's other things. And sometimes training goes by the wayside because, well, that's what I can not do today and keep everything yep. else in balance. But I would imagine that when you're training and competing at such a high level, that it can be just a massive shock when all of a sudden it's just not there anymore. Yeah, there's that as well as, so there's always that potential that it could be gone with an injury or you just didn't qualify or you're not moving through the system and steps properly as well as right. It's massively hard when you have people relying on you, looking at you and the pressure of performance changes from it's just about me to it's about a bigger system here. I got a wife, I got a family, I've got a, a career to somehow figure out how to make money off of while others, again, while others are moving on, that's the hardest thing. Like, what am I doing? Is this the right choice? And you can't ask if it's the right choice because if you start asking if it's the right choice, then your mind is not where it needs to be at the highest, highest, highest top, you know, 0.5% of world-class athletes. You need everything working in alignment towards that goal. And if you ask yourself why and what am I doing, you're done. Well, probably time to start looking for something else at that point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I see, as I'm hearing you talk about this, you know, I see a lot of parallels with clients who, when it comes time for them to retire, and sometimes the hardest part isn't because am I financially okay, but it's because your identity changes. Uh, and, and it dovetails with this, where you're that lineman for an SEC football team, and your entire life you've been the best play, best football player uh, in your town, you've been the best football player in your high school. You are competing at one of the highest levels, and then January comes. If you're not part of the NFL draft, or if the Olympics seem to be getting a little further away, all of a sudden, the past couple decades of your life, you look at that, and you've got to do something different now. And yeah. I imagine psychologically, that is a big challenge and a big feat to overcome to be able to put that behind you. And say, all right, now I got to start new and start focusing on something else because otherwise I'm going to get left behind. And and kind of uh, vocalizing your goals. It's not yeah. just you that well, you're and it's a change in it's a change in identity, right? That's what yeah. you're what you're talking about. I have a different identity for oh so many years. I was aligned with this company, or I had you know a goal with regards to financial income or with regards to career growth. Right, and all of a sudden that's no longer there. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're the old guy in the room. And I can see the parallels for sure. And your, your willingness to let go of that, that identity and to transition to a new identity, as well as feeling your own self-worth um, of how you're contributing. You know, there's not only in a community that you're contributing, but yourself, that you're like part of a bigger uh, society or bigger program. And, it is a difficult transition, but that being said, the opportunity to do something new or be somebody new and create your own opportunities is also allows for a lot of things in a positive way to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's not the, the, the proverbial, you know, I'm just going to play 18 holes or 36 holes of golf every day. It's more, well, how can I contribute? 
how can I learn something that I've always wanted to learn? How can I start working with the community or give back? Or there's so many different ways, but it just takes that surrendering to who you are and allowing yourself to become somebody new. When I was um, when I was in television, my first job I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. We had a lot of University of Virginia athletes swimming in those Olympic sports. And what I always got a kick out of is that one was a was a shot putter um, named Adam Nelson, who was uh, competed in several games, and he was a studio camera operator at our TV station, like during the during as his job, and he would carry around a camera and help us. And like, all right, well, this guy's an Olympic athlete, and it always struck me how well he handled that too because mm-hmm. it was a job that you know is kind of a grunt job but he did it and it was a means as of getting him to be able to compete and and have the flexibility to chase his dreams but i think there was a level of humility that he had there too because it's it wasn't a glamorous position at all nights weekends holidays you didn't make a lot of money i mean you're a tv studio camera operator in a small town in Virginia, I'd imagine there's a lot more of that going on than NBC presents every four years. Well, but also keep in mind, as amateur athletes, we learn that mindset early on, mm-hmm. right? You just just look at it this way. You know, at one point in time, I was ninth and 12th in the world in swimming. So I never made the finals of the Olympics, but I was ninth and 12th in my best rank. Now, you put me as the ninth or 12th best golfer, Best baseball player, yeah. Best NBA player, right? Best NFL. I'm set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's player, right. Right. So what you we learn early on, this is not a money making thing, right? And whether it's a shot putter, whether it's a decathlete, whether it's a 400 meter runner, it, you just know which industry, which sport, which track you're on. So we never. I say we because I think it's a general consensus. We're not in that mindset. We know we do this truly amateur for love of our the sport as well as be the best we can be and we'll go from there. Whereas if you grow up early on as one of the best basketball players, NFL, uh, football players, or anything, it's a different approach, right? You got the academies, you got the sponsors, you got the attention, you got the the recruitment, you got, uh, there's a lot. You're already, your psyche and your mindset towards all this completely changes. So if we switch gears here real quick, Chris, you know, one thing that fascinates me is what is involved with a city or a country hosting the Olympic Games. Uh, and because, you know, I we see pictures of this beautiful facility that five or ten years after is full of weeds and and not being used at all. And a lot of studies have shown in the past handful of decades that on average the Olympics have been over budget by more than double what they had originally anticipated. And some cities have had to withdraw their bids because they're just being priced out of it. Why do you think it costs so much to be able to host some of these games? Or can you give us some perspective on what goes on behind the scenes that, that we may not necessarily see? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to build brand new facilities for these events. It's no longer like back in the 70s, 60s, even up to the mid 80s, that you were able to use the current infrastructure, maybe just clean it up a little bit and mm-hmm. go from there. I mean, 84 Olympics in LA, they used the same Memorial Coliseum that they used in the 36 <laughs> one. I don't, I don't remember yeah. which Olympics. And so, you know, it's a different animal now that you have to build swimming and track and field and all the different, the rowing and all the different compounds have to be built. The Olympic village has to be built, but also in most cases, again, it's a showcase for two weeks where the whole world is looking at your country, right? We saw that especially with Sochi and when the entire you know, Russian <laughs> uh, postcard was on display, mm-hmm. that's all gone. It basically doesn't exist anymore, A, because they don't want to deal with it, pay for it. But Sarajevo, when it got bombed and all that, it's just it's they're paying that money in order to be a beautiful display for two weeks out of the year in hopes of kicking up the country's economy, kicking up the country's pride and confidence on a, on a world stage, um, as well as, you know, 
there's a lot of money being thrown around with regards to the IOC and, and ensuring that we get this opportunity. So that's part of the big expense as well. I mean, whether that's clean money or not, that's a different debate, but it's more <laughs> just we're paying in order to put our country, our city on display in the world. Um, you know, they called 96 the first corporate games with um, Coca-Cola really taking a big step and McDonald's and a variety of stuff because 92 was just transitioning to a bigger corporate place, but now it's just a huge corporate animal that pays, yep. that churns every four years. But the city and the, the country, it's mainly for showcase. And then when it's gone, that's it. It's not like, you know, <laughs> you're going to, I'm planning a trip to Sochi this year. <laughs> right. Or, or that, you know, the softball complex in Beijing is going yeah. to get continued use. No. No, it turns into a parking lot, which, yeah. you know, then you look at it and you think what a, we look at that now and think what a waste of resources, of money, of human labor. I mean, that's the other thing in some of these countries, the labor to construct these facilities is not yeah. necessarily above board either. Yeah. Well, at least, I mean, they'll argue that, you know, it's jobs. It's sure. churning the economy. It's foreign money coming in and all those things. So there's two sides to the coin, but I, I don't trust that equation too much. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because this is, you know, looking at it from a financial perspective and thinking, gosh, it seems like it would make sense to have a central location somewhere that they can they can repurpose. Hmm. I, I There's so many downsides to that, which I get, but I'm curious as to your thought of if it would ever make sense or you could ever see that happening where there was a a couple of central locations where the infrastructure didn't have to be constantly rebuilt and then not yeah. be used. Or is that just a, is that just a, like a unicorn, you know, a dream that doesn't really exist? Well, they, they want to keep those things international, right? Mm -hmm. It is sure. the IOC international Olympic committee and give other countries the opportunity to be on the world stage like that. If it's only going back and forth between the U S Europe, yeah. You know, Australia, yep. maybe some, you know, the bigger industrialized nations and regions of the world, then it's a different, you know, dynamic that you, the, the smaller countries definitely feel like we're just being, you know, invited versus that we're equal players. Um, but, you know, you also have Olympics that go extremely well, like a Rio, right? Mm -hmm. Where a Rio, those stadiums, I mean, that quickly transitioned to soccer and, you know, track and field events and stuff like that. And at the time, that economy was just, you know, booming anyway. And so it carried a lot of momentum with it and a lot of um, tailwinds for the next few years. The question becomes, you know, when you go into places where clearly this is not going to be sustainable, yeah. like, you know, but, but then, you know, you also have World Cup and you have this, yep. this dynamic moves in a variety of sports slash industries where you're like, well, okay, why are we building 14 um, soccer stadiums in Dubai that, you know, aren't really going to be needed? Right. Now yeah. that is, that is, I mean, you see the, the pictures of just rundown facilities, but you don't often think about the, you know, if done well and properly, the long-term impact that that could have on that economy, where sure, that facility may be run down, but that may have jump-started some tourism uh, getting into yeah. that country and, and more folks traveling there, which has a, certainly has a longer-term benefit than that softball field that's now a pile of oh, weeds. Oh, for sure, for sure. And you see it like Atlanta, you know, you still have Centennial Park and you still have a bun bunch of different facilities that went from college that are now college facilities and most of that. So there it's easier to sort of integrate it into the system. But let's say for example, Munich from the 72 Olympics. And that's where sort of, I grew up training is, you know, that pool is wonderful. Still a great facility. The, the soccer stadium just got moved a couple of years ago, but it was the track and field stadium, the Munich Olympic stadium and where Bayern Munich played. The basketball stadium is still used for a ton of events. So it's an Olympic center, Olympic village, Olympic everything. The only thing they've changed is that they moved the Olympic village where the athletes stay and they made that, you know, apartment. Um, yeah. But that also carried a whole different burden with it with regards to the whole um, terrorist attack. And so therefore that whole area, they quickly wanted to re-identify because they don't want 
create a memorial around that. So it was, uh, but the facilities are fantastic, well-kept. Um, we all still use them. A new generation of athletes has worked their way through there. But that's in a country where, you know, you can project that that it'll be there for the next 25 years. Sure. Yeah. Um, so outside the financial stuff, which has been very interesting, um, you know, I think one of the things with the Olympics that differs from the NFL, the major pro sports here in the United States is um, how it kind of um, imparts on us the memories from specific games. And I'm, I'm happy to make you feel old because the 92 Olympics, it's the first games I remember. Um, yeah. and, and you were three. You were not even three years old when that happened. But, I, I mean, I remember the dream team, watching the dream yeah. team play then. And I'm curious because you have the experience that comes with age but also that that comes with having participated in some of these games. We all have Olympic memories or things that stand out that you remember seeing happen. What is something that stands out in your mind from your lifetime that you saw and that you just know you'll always remember? Well, the, the part that stays with me, for example, the most, but plenty of people that I've talked to, it's not necessarily your event or doing your sport, because of course there's are memories and they're powerful, but you've been doing that all your life. It's all the hoopla around it, right? Mm -hmm. The opening ceremonies, I mean, it's just, it just completely blows you away. And, um, you know, Atlanta, just with Muhammad Ali and that arrow being shot. And I mean, it's just absolutely insane. And Janet Evans handing Muhammad Ali that torch and him sitting up there and lighting the final. I mean, it's just, it was a, such a powerful moment. But also that was the first time, not the first time, but it was, it might've been one of the first times is uh, where they had that huge Olympic flag going over the entire infield or the, the, the stadium. And you got to figure, you know, there's twelve to 15,000 athletes under that flag just in, in a complete euphoria and excitement and, you know, good mood and so i'll never forget that um 90 well and 96 also keep in mind you know is sort of the first attack on the olympics mm -hmm. when um the centennial park bombing happened and you know we all had pagers <laughs> in 96 um there wasn't a lot of cell phone coverage and so they prep you security wise they prep you prior what each code means and what that where you clear out to and how you distance yourself and where the meeting points are. You have security briefings at all these Olympics. Um, 88 was in Seoul. So you had a lot of athletes in a, you know, in a country where they're still technically at war with North Korea. Um, so there's a lot of security details and things that happen behind the scenes that people don't realize in prep for the Olympics. There's a lot of logistics and details that go into that. And so 96, when those pagers went off um, and all us, all of us realizing this wasn't just a test, you know, you see those numbers come across and you've been ingrained that that means, you know, get out of there, meet at, get back to the safety of the Olympic Village. That was a completely different dynamic. Um, not that we were out anywhere, but it's just, it was actually happening for the first time. And, um, you know, of course, you, I grew up in Germany and I grew up in a, a society where terrorism is pretty um, prevalent with regards to airports, with regards to travel. But I also grew up in Munich where the Olympics were first had their first terrorist attack. So seeing all that in the first you know, few days of the Olympics changed the entire dynamics very quickly. Like you couldn't let go of the fact that it was actually happening, that there was actually vulnerability and that we can't control the security on something like that in general. Like in the meantime, the access to the athletes is minimal. I mean, if you have a family member there, for you to actually get and be able to spend time with your athlete during the Olympics, very difficult, very difficult. The, the safety zones and the barriers and the protocols and how quickly you're shuttled in and out of the villages on the buses um, is is extremely structured and extremely secure so in barcelona we would still just walk out of the pool and our family would be there on the other side of the barricade and you would just walk out of the barricade <laughs> and you're just walking around town with your credentials it doesn't work like that anymore you're basically shut down for three weekends two weeks 
All right, that was Chris Hout. Again, a big thank you to Chris for spending the time with us. A lot of value in that interview. And also, I love the stories part of it. I, I could sit and listen to the stories of someone who's in the Olympics like Chris or when he talked about um, the Olympic Village and those things and those experiences. Yeah. I could listen to that. Uh, for well, what happens in the Olympic Village stays in the Olympic That's right. Village, and 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 I know knowing Chris on a personal level, we're not getting it out of him. It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's he's not going to disclose anything there. But, oh, I did. Uh, a, I appreciated the conversation on, or per, you know, more the perspective of what the athlete experience is like in other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I certainly did not. I hadn't even considered that and thought about that going into this. Uh, but how how cool of an event that must mm-hmm. be for them especially the opening ceremonies if you're coming from a country that has only a handful of athletes and how special that must be in the recognition that that you have for the rest of your life when you really think about it if you're an olympic athlete from the united states the united states russia china you know great britain a lot of these countries go their athletes win a lot of medals yeah. and and i think you you expect to be in the in the realm of competition for a medal but when you really think of it there's only three medalists in each sport. Yeah. And in a lot of these countries, the paramount event is not winning a medal. It's getting there. And, and representing And representing your country, your country which, yeah. as, as Chris said, it's such an honor in a lot of these smaller countries. And I think, too, that was something I hadn't thought about it before. No. But that how for many of these athletes, just getting to the Olympic Games is is it. Yeah. And, and where you place... Doesn't matter. We don't think about the ninth place sprinter no. in the hundred in the hundred meter dash. No, but if they go home to a very uh, a modest sized country, I'm sure that they have a pretty pretty open welcome. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about, I mean, Chris said he was the sixth and twelfth ranked swimmer in various events in the world at one time. That's pretty good. Yeah. Even if you're not leaving with a medal around Absolutely. your neck, that is that is really something. So again, our thanks to. To Chris Hout for the time spent with us. We really uh, enjoyed it and had a had a really good time with him and look forward to having him back here with us again sometime soon. Thanks for being with us. This is Wade into Wealth. Contact the Wade Group at Wade Group at brightonsecurities.com or find them on Facebook or Twitter at The Wade Group. Thanks for listening to Wade Into Wealth, brought to you by The Wade Group at Brighton Securities.